You're listening to KZYX and Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg, we're at 88.1 FM. Altogether, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. We're also listener-supported community radio, and you can find us on the web, kzyx.org. Good evening, and welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Opinions, perspectives, stories, and science of the Redwood Region and the Jackson Demonstration State Forest in particular. Today we have the first of two episodes focused on recreation, hiking, biking, horseback riding, mushroom foraging, and even meditation in the groves. We will hear a talk I gave about trails to a group of mountain bikers, then hear from Larry Shea, former owner of Ricochet Ridge Ranch. Stay tuned! We are going to start off today with a talk I gave to a group of 50 mountain bikers who had come up from the Bay Area and from Los Angeles and have been coming up every year with a group that's called Field Trip. They stay at Jug Handle Farms and camp out, and they also get talks from various local people, and this time they participated in a trail workday with the Mendocino Coast cyclists. I'm Chad Swimmer. I've lived in the county since 1986 most of the time. And I've lived really close to Jackson for a lot of that time. For many years, I mountain biked, but my mountain bike rides were like two or three miles because that's what I thought about at the time. I'd ride out, I'd stash my bike, I'd go pick some mushrooms, I'd come back to my trailer, which was a quarter mile from the scales. And I only found out three years ago that the forest was called Jackson State Forest because they really, really don't put signage anywhere. I mean, everything, every sign you see, like say the Forest History Trailhead, that's new. The kiosk at Casper Scales is new. This is not, this is all stolen, unseated land. And this area, Mendocino County, was site of some of the worst of the um, massacres that happened in California. And it wasn't even treaties. It was just like massacre price on people's heads, just it was horrendous unbelievable and this area was one of the highest population density areas of northern california before the arrival of europeans it was you know a lot of people thought these these pomo people and these coast yuki were living in this paradise that they had no responsibility for and in fact they had been living here for 10,000 years stewarding the forest and the the town of Casper was in was a really like incredible um, gold rush town because the gold rush never really panned out for money. It was the lumber rush that panned out for huge amounts of money in Northern California. And Casper at one point had 30 bars, and and they had you know on payday there were drunk loggers lying on the side of the road the next morning. I mean the bar I turned 21 at is Casper Inn, which is closed now. But really, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a radio journalist and a podcaster. I'm a naturalist and an educator. But I really end up thinking about things in a macro fashion, which gets me in trouble. And so what Stephen or Steve, which do you prefer? Stephen's fine. Stephen. Yeah, Stephen kind of wanted me to talk about the trail stewards and what you guys can do and what is trail stewardship. And I went around in my head, how would I want to frame what I have to say? And how would I make it a discussion? And so what I would say first is I want to ask you a question. 
And don't answer it, but think about it for a minute. And then later, as you come up with answers, what this is so so simple, but what is a trail? And I can't tell you that I ever thought about it much until two years ago. And I did a lot of trail work. And trails take a lot of work. And I have walked, I hiked the John Muir Trail. I've hiked a lot of the Pacific Crest Trail in Washington. But I never thought about what is a trail. But what's a trail? Does somebody have just like a one sentence, what is a trail? So it's a path that lets you access um, areas for whatever need it is. I mean, it started off, you know, back with like having access paths for native people who just go through the forest just to get to water, to get to new places. Now we use it for recreation. So it's a path to the forest. Through. It's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a start. It's like at its simplest in my mind, it's like it's something you follow or it's something you leave. So like, you know, I leave a trail and you follow my trail. Your dog follows my trail. But, you know, I'm a fanatic mountain biker. I mountain bike six days a week and I live in yeah. paradise for this. But I think that if I think about it for most of human history, only the last fraction of a percentage are trails for recreation. And that there's actually like, how many of you guys rode OT today, observatory trail? That is the first purposefully machine-built, mountain bike-built trail here. And if you think about, like, like I was thinking about some examples of what are, you know, what, what are trails that the Silk Trail from, you know, 12,000 miles across Asia, the development of all of societies in that whole area was because trails are such an interchange of styles and cultures and food and goods and but there, every, every trail has unforeseen, everything we do has unforeseen consequences. If you think of like, like the Annapurna Trail, the Everest Trail, one of the, what is the biggest unforeseen consequence that you can imagine in terms of public health? Tooth decay. Because people go out and climbers bring tons of candy to give to the kids. And so this great trail that tens of thousands of Westerners have gone on and loved has created this enormous problem. And nobody could foresee that because we don't think about it. And the trails that, that we ride are, um, like if you're thinking about, how many people here have ridden Manly, Manly Gulch? Manly Gulch is old. Nobody I know of knows when it was made, but it's probably 1920s, maybe earlier. Manly Gulch is great. It's a narrow trail on a hillside. It hasn't caused any erosion, except at the very bottom. Very few unforeseen consequences, except something that Steve was talking about with Eric Schramm, the mushroom guy who was gonna come. Manly Gulch goes through some really incredible mushroom patches at the right time of season. And so, you know, at some point those were somebody's secret patches, but it wasn't created by mountain bikers. It was probably made at, by tan barkers, people who went and got tan bark oaks, which there's a tan oak right there. Some of them get really big, but they use them for, they used them for the tannin 
to tan leather. And so these people would get tan oaks out that way. And think, I was trying to look at what are examples of how, how civilization has developed with trails and paths, as opposed to roads, for instance, like Boston. The town of Boston, when, the, when it was a town, it was like a place to get lost because all the streets were based on cow paths. It wasn't like grids. And has anybody here gotten lost in the trail network out here? <laughs> I've gotten lost. When I first really started mountain biking, I was always following this group. And we'd go and go. And then one time they couldn't go, and I was all set to go. And I went, I went around the same circle three times just up at the top of EOP, so annoyed. But, so the trails here, there's, there's a number of different kinds of trails here, and all of them took a ton of work. Like trails take so much work, and I'm so glad to hear that you guys are gonna do trail work tomorrow, and I hope I'll be there. Um, I'll get to that, that trail in a minute, but the, if you look at Jackson, Jackson is one of the best trail networks for my kind of mountain biking in all of Northern California. There's almost, there's no rocks. It's most days I go out, I don't see anybody. I could get lost, but I don't anymore because I know it really well. But um, Jackson is 80 square miles and most of the entire arterial road network is all gravel. And they're all, um, basically like logging freeways, logging roads. Every single one of them was built on top of a Pomo trail that was probably 5,000 years old. And I personally am a pragmatist, but I would like logging to slow down and stop because I don't think that wood is a good thing to build houses out in California. I don't think that you know, our, our climate can support the amount of emissions that go into logging. But it's part of this county's history. And the, the logging road network chose the, um, the ideal ways to get from here to there. And the Pomo people, usually they lived in the winter inland. Different bands lived in different places. But in general, they, they traveled to the coast in the summer and they got tons of salmon and abalone and seaweed and surf fish and smoked them and preserved them and then went back over and there was lots of trading and there's an incredible history and a lot of it is um sit down to the smoke a lot of it is stuff that because of the movement to save jackson we actually have a dialogue about the history of this that it wasn't happening before and that there's a lot of concern that it's not talked about because the, the Pomo people that are alive, which are a lot of people, don't want people out there looking for arrowheads and sacred sites. And for logging, cutting trees is one thing, but road building is really destructive. And our mountain biking has really grown on this network of roads that were built. Many of them were built 100 years ago. And... Um, if you look at like, how many people have ridden, let's see, how many people have ridden the Casper Classic race course? We all did that yesterday. So it's when you go up from Casper Scales, you start off on 
what's called parallel trail, not parallel action, but parallel trail. Parallel trail was pioneered by equestrians who now don't want to ride it because they're afraid of getting hit by a mountain biker. I ride with a bell. And if I remember, I ring it before every blind corner because I really want to be on good terms with equestrians and a number of them my friends. And I've almost run them off the road and an equestrian gets tossed, they can die. And if the horse rears up and kicks you, you can die. So it's, if you come flying around a corner and there's a horse there, it's better if they know you're coming. And I like to ride fast. So it's, I've definitely made my, had my errors on the trails, but that, bottom wasn't pioneered by equestrians but it was pioneered on old skid trails which are logging roads and then it crossed over and it goes up a long stretch is called tv trail it's all old logging roads so it's path of least resistance if you're making a trail that's what you do that was pioneered by motorcycles and mountain bikers started doing it and then complaining that motorcycles were there. I'm not a motorcycle rider, but it's just part of the picture. Um, and then Jim's, so you get up to the top of Three Post and Jim's and the Casper we, Classic. We skipped out on Jim's. It felt like the right, the right move at the time. <laughs> you skipped it? Yeah. Yeah. It's steep and it's got a big gully in the middle of it and it's pretty dangerous. I've flipped on it before, but it's super fun. But it was entirely created by motorcycles on logging trails. And the unforeseen consequences are you've got a lot of these ones that for more advanced mountain bikers are really fun. Environmentally, they're not a great thing. The erosion that they cause is a problem. And erosion can mostly only be understood in terms of decades and centuries as opposed to, you know, if you go, oh, you came back next year and there wasn't any problem and you're like, there's no problem here, I'm going to ride it again. And... But if you come back in 200 years and you might see an entirely different situation where that gully turned into a slide, turned into, you know, a whole different plant situation, lots of invasive seeds from the from people's boots and shoes and from the logging trucks. And, you know, a lot of the things that that we've all I mean, I look at you all and I only imagine that you all think about it sometimes. Because I think that being a mountain biker, being somebody who likes to be out in nature, we're conflicted in the modern world because our place in nature is tenuous. And as when the trail steward started, it started because we were at a meeting, a number of us were at a meeting of Mendocino Coast cyclists. And we looked at, this was in, it was March, first 2020, so not that long ago, we looked at a map of the projected timber harvest plans. And we started because we saw that 50 to 80% of the mountain bike trails were likely to be closed in the summer of 2022, which is now. So if we hadn't have started and set this whole ball rolling, most of the trails you rode today would not have been open right now. That doesn't mean they would have been destroyed, but it, would, it does mean they would have been off limits. And many of them would have been rolled over by the logging process, and some of them would have been recreated. The trails you're gonna, that we or you are gonna work on tomorrow, um, Gunslinger and Ride Through Tree, Ride Through Tree was made by a mountain biker, 
and it was pretty much made for mountain biking. It was made, as far as I know, by Jesse Rathbun, who owns Boonville Bike Works and used to live out here with help of people. That area got logged in 2014, and the, the president of the logging company walked the trail, and there was a big agreement that they were going to keep that trail intact because people loved that trail, and that trail did not get damaged. But if that's our only thing to look at, then it's a success. And if you look at that area that got logged in different ways, you can judge it in different ways. And that it all depends on your value judgments. What, what were some of those trails that would have been shut down if, if you didn't shut down the timber harvest? The timber harvest plan that really set it off was called Casper 500. And Casper 500 centers on the scales. And so legit, which is also known as um, Jackaroo, which goes from ride through, you go down. Ride through wouldn't have been closed. Legit would have been closed. Easy in would have been closed. Big tree, the top of it would have been closed. Steam donkey would have been closed. Uh, parallel, all the parallel action, um, TV trail, jug handle, wuss hill, gems, road 500, road 510, road 511, which are all roads that we ride on. They all would have been closed right now. Does anybody, has anybody heard about Mama Tree? Yeah, so a bunch of us stopped by there yesterday and today. So that tree, the trail stewards had gone some distance in making and raising awareness about what was going on. And a group of mountain bikers that goes out three days a week who are all locals, pretty much all retired, I was riding with one person, I ran into them, and they're like, we just passed the biggest tree that it was striped for removal on right by Easy N, and it's a seven-foot diameter tree, and it's, how can they legally cut something so big on public land? And um, we went up and took pictures of it, and then we, we call it the poster mama tree, and it's not like it's a giant old-growth redwood, but it's a pretty large, beautiful tree. And that tree was saved by direct activists who raised a tree sit, which means they put up a platform and camped in it. The first person to camp in it was a high school senior. The first nonviolent direct action training was right here at this campfire. And that was um, a year and three months ago. And that really pushed forward the public awareness of it and put a bunch of people kind of at odds with each other it was a very uneasy truce that we, you know, tons of us worked together, but it created a situation that now all the timber harvest plans in Jackson State are on hold and a new management plan is being written. And it's incredible. And it's, you know, my, my that kind of... Happened before? Hmm? Has that ever happened before? It's never happened before. It's... The takeaway is, is that you know, it's we live in a weird quasi semi non democracy democracy, but sometimes things work, and sometimes you find that whatever you're, if you're willing to put the time in, and if you're willing to really like try to work with people, they're rewriting the management plan of an 80 square mile state forest, and one of the main things it's going to include is tribal co management with the Pomo people, which is like a huge victory. And the, 
the win-win that I see is, is that the trails are still open and the trails are getting attention. And Cal Fire, which can't get a timber harvest plan through here and recently withdrew a number of already um, submitted timber harvest plans and withdrew them because it looked clear they would have to open up their records in court. And if they did, they would, something happened recently that, um, has anybody heard the news story about Cal Fire hiding public comments on their website? So the whole timber harvest plan process involves public input and informed public and um, informed commentary from state agencies like California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Well, Cal Fire in Jackson State writes the timber harvest, harvest plans for themselves, submits them to a different branch of Cal Fire, and during the process, Fish and Wildlife, the water boards, everybody is supposed to investigate the plan, comment on it. The comments are supposed to go to the forester who then addresses the issues or not. And all those comments from Cal Fire's own plans were being hidden and edited before being submitted back to the forester. And it came up that an environmental group through California Public Records Act requests got this information and we publicized it. And Cal Fire withdrew all the plans rather than go to court because they were getting hit by environmentalists, they were getting hit by um, tribal groups, they were getting hit just by random people and mountain bikers and they realized that they didn't want to to open this can of worms. So instead, what's happened is we've got a huge opportunity for change. And Cal Fire now is getting 250% of their previous budget for Jackson from a source that's independent of timber harvest because the whole forest was being financed by and for timber harvest. And we would always complain, hey, you've got the scales. Where's the restroom? We need a restroom. Hundreds of people come here. EOP, where are the maps? People get lost. And this is all now possible. Come out to the Casper Scales on Sunday, August 28th to join the Mendocino County Youth for Climate in our celebration of monumental tribal co-management in Jackson State Forest. From 1 to 4, there will be speakers, singers, live music, and it is the final day of a quilt raffle that has been going on all summer to raffle off some beautiful local-made quilts to help financially support the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. It'll be a fun-filled day, an opportunity to learn about what's going on in Jackson now and to get involved. You know, looking at what can you as visitors do to support this, there's a lot I could say, but I've just been blabbing away and I had some coffee on the way up, and so <laughs> I really would love to open it up. Could you talk about some of those figures we talked about earlier with regards to how much you had to raise? for OT and within the context of the Cal Fire budget? So, yeah, I'll, Observatory Trail was a trail that was okayed because it avoided a unpermitted shooting range. So there's the road, Casper 408 is a road that goes from Mendocino to Highway 20 and it's about 14 miles long, and there's a large unpermitted shooting range that's been used forever, and it's dangerous, and it's polluted, and mountain bikers hated riding by it. So we got them to agree that we needed a bypass trail. And 
Then there was a lot of talk about it, and Eric Wall, who you'll meet tomorrow, and Eric spent a lot of time. He was the road manager to create this trail, but the mountain bikers, not myself, but Mendocino Coast cyclists, who all I was doing with them was volunteer for trail days, they raised $150,000 from a group called One Track Mind. And John Donnacle, who's a mountain biker, put the money into this trail. And it was going to be the first machine-built, specifically built trail on the coast. And um, you really, I mean, there's a few people who put so much work. And Eric Wall put a lot. Um, Nick Taylor put a ton of work in. Mike Berna, um, Amy Wind, um, Michaela Biaggi. People just put so much work to get this money. The problem is, is that same year, Cal Fire sold $18 million worth of timber out of Casper Watershed. And their budget for the year was $4.5 million. So it's, you know, to me, that's a kind of a backwards thing because on the one hand, it's good if we actually put our own investment and time into it because then we take ownership for it. And that trail took hundreds of, of um, trail crew hours because we didn't have enough money to actually have the trail making firm finish it. But because of that, we made it more to our specifics. And it's, and like every biker you'll pass on the trail who lives here has put time into it. Is there an argument from people in the town why they would be pro uh, timber logging? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the argument, there's a lot of arguments. And one is, is that this is a, a, a timber town, you know, but the mill is gone. Most of the mills moved to uh, the global south a few years ago, what used to be called the third world. Um, and there's, there is one mill that processes timber from Jackson in Willits. Their situation is, is that every different type of tree takes a different mill and every different size of tree. Like a, for bigger trees, trees over five foot diameter that are redwoods, they take a specific kind of mill. And um, the argument from the town and from the county is, is that it, it is our our culture. You know, Paul Fort Bragg has Paul Bunyan days, and the economies change. And the U.S. Forest Service did a study a few years back, I think in 2015, that pointed at ecotourism and specifically mountain biking as the biggest growth industry in the Northwest. And tourism in general, like in the last years, I have figures as 2017, um, tourism employed 100, well, let's see, 700, no, 7,000 people in the county, not counting off, you know, trickle down, and timber supported 350 to 500 people. An argument in the opposite direction is, is that those are better paying jobs than a lot of the restaurant jobs. But when you look at the structure of the world economy, resource extraction usually does pay more money. But that's only if you just look at the you know the dollars that are being exchanged now and not the hundred year or thousand year picture all the different expenses that aren't you know summed up in one price or one wage and here we've got like jack in mendocino county for much of the last 50 years you can't sell anything but redwood and redwood's not actually um Redwood is not a structural building material. And it's the quality of the redwood that's being brought out is not 
it's not like old growth redwood, which for all the moral dilemma of cutting down an old growth tree or a tree that's a hundred times as old as the person cutting it, it's still wood that's valuable and really quality. Whereas the wet redwood that's being produced now is really not very durable. And on the flip side of it, it's been proven by numerous studies to be the best carbon sequestering organism on the planet. And so if we're thinking about, you know, the imperative of the moment, which is climate change, you know, we need to preserve everything we can. But the argument against it, unfortunately, and maybe I'm speaking to the choir, maybe not, there's, you know, we know what the news and we know what science is like now and that science is demonized. And there's an awful lot of people who say we need to keep cutting because this climate change thing is a hoax. And on the other hand, a lot of us say, no, it's not a hoax. It's, this is real. And we need to look at what we're doing. And as mountain bikers, you know, we need to coexist and take some ownership of the place that Cal Fire used to be called CDF, California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. And in those old days, most fires had a forest component. We're called forest fires, but most for fires now are not forest fires. They're, you know, they might be start off in a forest grove. They might end up as a brush fire and a grass fire and become an urban fire. Like the Paradise Fire, there's aerial photos of neighborhoods burnt to the ground and the entire forest around them is still standing. And if you go into it, you see burns up to 10 feet, but the forest is fine. But, so Cal Fire was CDF. CDF got forest in a number of different ways, but this is the biggest one, and it was acquired in 1947 because Casper Lumber Company had reached the end of the timber that they could harvest with their technology at the time and couldn't pay their taxes. So they sold it. They sold 80 square miles for a million and a half dollars to the state. <coughs> Excuse me, the state in the 1950s and 60s logged um, 10 square miles of old growth trees, 1,000 to 2,000 year old trees. And pretty much until the mid 70s, only logged old growth. And in the mid 70s, um, switched over. And then it was still CDF. Right after 9 11, um, many agencies like CAL FIRE were encouraged to participate in law enforcement and counterterrorism training because there's terrorists in the forest, obviously, eco-terrorists. But they, um, they, spent, they spent lots of money in law enforcement training and at all the state parks got the same thing. They got much more militaristic in their attitude in many ways, changed their name to Cal Fire. And so now they're Cal Fire and they technically are the managers of state forest land. The state forest permitting process encourages, encourages people to think, them to think of themselves as the landowners. But it's state forest, so it belongs to all of us, right? And so shouldn't, we should have a say in it. And, you know, the loggers, I, you know, I worked in the school district for 16 years, and a number of them are people I know and are friends, and they're like, well, we have a right, it's our forest too. I said, sure, go ride your horse, go mountain bike, but you don't have a right to cut it down. And there's, 
it's a demonstration forest, which in the larger forestry, silvicultural terminology, that means it's a forest to demonstrate better logging techniques. So one of the arguments is, is that by using Jackson, they're improving logging on all private timberlands. And um, that could lead down another rabbit hole <laughs> of my explanations. But I, at this point, I think that's a done deal. I mean, I think that the, the guy who created the term was a forester named Emmanuel Fritz, who was big in the first half of the last century. And what he said is we need to demonstrate that we can manage forests so we continue to pay our taxes. There was no thought of conservation. I mean, this wasn't like we're going to save old growth. They went and, you know, systematically cut 15-foot diameter trees for another 20 years. But they did it in a way that allowed them to keep paying their taxes. And it's, again, it's, the whole thing is very complicated. But it, a lot of us believe that the mindset that needs to be followed now is a mindset of 2022 and not 1947. And, you know, if you look at, I think it's encapsulated most in this, this um, statement that they're worth more standing. The trees are worth more standing. You know, if you look at the air and the water mitigation and the money that people like us all bring into a community, you know, if I go mountain biking in Downeyville and spend 450 bucks in a weekend, I haven't cut a tree in the process. And yeah, I did burn some gas to get there, but you know, the, these forests are, especially since I really noticed it at the start of the pandemic, how many people got out as soon as shelter in place ended. They're like, oh, I need to be here. And they had no idea how to be here. And they were getting lost and they were confused and they were leaving their trash, but they still were being recharged by the forest. And they won't be recharged by a clear cut. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Chad Swimmer. Thursday, August 25th at midnight, I will be speaking with Andrea Pritchett, a founder of Berkeley Cop Watch, about the unrest that's happening in Berkeley as UC crews have moved in in the dead of night to cut trees and break ground in the iconic People's Park. We'll also hear from Matt Simmons and Tom Wheeler of the Environmental Protection Information Center about how legal activism can protect wild spaces. Thursday, August 25th at midnight on KZYX and Z. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Now let's go to our interview with Larry Shea. Larry moved to Mendocino from Berkeley, where she had been studying at the University of California. Her two children, Rafferty and Kiala Shea, were born here, as was her grandson Finnegan. She brought her high school horse from Michigan to UC Berkeley, and he's buried here in Albion. In the late 1970s, Larry was appalled by the neglect she saw some horses suffer on the Mendocino coast. Her belief was that education would do more than legislation to fix that, and she was able to teach a horse mastership program through the College of the Redwoods for the next 12 years. Eventually, Larry brought horse lovers from nearly every country in the world to the Mendocino Coast to experience our beaches and Jackson State Forest through her Ricochet Ridge Ranch trail rides and riding vacations. Larry Shea, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. How are you? It's a pleasure. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into spending time with horses? Sure. I was born in England, a Second World War baby, 
and my mother came to this country with my dad, so I was in joint citizenship uh, at first. And I came to California to attend UC Berkeley and majored in anthropology, which made a heck of a cocktail waitress of me, and that's what I did when I first moved to Mendocino with my first husband. But I always had horses. I came to California with my horse that I had bought while I was in high school, and he's buried on my property that I used to live on and own in Albion. And my dream was to write for a horsey magazine and travel the world. And I started writing for various horse magazines. Oh, golly, I guess my first uh, article was probably published in the uh, early 70s. And then I began horseback riding in the woods behind our property in Albion. There was a 6,000-acre ranch called the Old Hardell Ranch. Mm-hmm. It was owned by what became Georgia Pacific. It was Union Lumber Company. And I horseback rode there. I eventually taught for the College of the Redwoods, a horse mastership program. And I would take my students, for the fun of it, down riding in the in the woods. And Terry Scholers, who, uh, as you probably know, uh, taught at College of the Redwoods Botany and other classes like that, she and I led a week-long horseback ride through Mendocino County one year. Uh, she talking about poisonous and edible plants and medicinal plants, and me talking about care of the horse in the wilderness. And so we had such a good time just being out in, of course, we rode through Jackson State Forest for many, many, many miles, you know, all the way to the east part of it and back. Most of our riding was in Jackson State. So uh, over the years, I began taking people on more and more trail rides. I taught for the college for 12 years, but it became clear that I could travel the world with my horseback riding, trail riding business and write about my travels in magazines. And so my pre-college dreams were kind of coming true based here in Mendocino. Mm -hmm. When did you start the Ricochet Ridge business? I started it in the late 70s. My kids were born in 74 and 76. And I was taking people on horseback rides at that time. And I decided to you know, make a business of it. And my dear friend Leona Walden sent me a postcard with ideas for names for my new business uh, based on the name Shea. So there was, um, oh, she said, uh, Sashay This Away Acres. Um, I liked Shady Lady Horse Trader, but that brought up the word ricochet. And I always loved that old song, Ricochet Romance. Uh-huh. So I... First of all, uh, spelled the word ricochet, R-I-C-O-S-H-E-A, but that was too corny. So I just uh, turned it into ricochet. Yeah. <laughs> Which nobody can spell. How many horses <laughs> did you start with? Well, I started with one horse and two ponies for my kids. And that one horse was a half Russian Orlov named Nature Czar. And he was... A dream horse. He was just an incredible dressage horse and trail horse. And I bought his mother from a veterinarian who was very active in the sport of endurance riding and had bred his own mare to the stallion, uh, the stallion Nature's Ballet. So I bought Czar from him and then bought the mother of Czar and told him I'd 
loved to buy the stallion. And he said, well, Nature's Ballet is for sale in Canada right now for $70,000. Now, I had not originally purchased Czar when I first saw him because I'd been living for 10 years out in Albion with no electricity, no flush toilet. <laughs> and I priced the septic tank and I priced this colt. And, well, you know, I bought the horse. <laughs> wow. So a few years later when I did have the septic tank and I was uh, showing the horse in dressage classes, I was still a long way from being able to... I couldn't have even afforded $7,000 for the $70,000 horse. So Dr. Ridgway hand-delivered my letter offering to buy the stallion for no money down and no money ever, but I would do something with it. And I didn't have any flashy 8 by 10 photos of Zara and me in dressage shows because I couldn't afford to buy the photos. So I sent some pictures of my daughter, who was three at the time, riding Zara, and my son, who was six, and me. And it turned out that the man who owned him had six children of his own and was having financial problems. And we didn't talk via telephone because it was too expensive. So we were writing back and forth. I came home from a horse show, a dressage show at Stanford in the middle of the night one night. And there's a big white horse in the middle of my apple orchard. Wow. And there was a tent <laughs> in the apple orchard. And this man popped his head out and said, Larry Shea, I've brought you the white stallion. And the next morning, you know, it was the middle of the night. I put my kids to bed at dawn. We went down there. And he said to my son, Rafferty Shea, he said, Master Shea, this horse is going to change your lives. So it's fitting as the head of this household, Rafferty being a boy and my daughter and I being girls, he said, it's fitting you should be the first one to ride this horse. So he popped Rafferty, age six, up on the stallion's back, no saddle, no bridle, no halter, no rope or anything, and asked Nature's Ballet to take Master Shea for a walk. And so... Nature's Ballet started walking around the 100-foot square paddock. And when Sonny Ferris, the uh, owner of the stallion, asked my son if he wanted to go faster and was told, yeah, he asked Nature's Ballet to take Rafferty for a canter. And Blue picked up a beautiful canter round and round. And then Kayla got to ride him. So I was the third one to ride Nature's Ballet. And Sonny Ferris had also brought five of his offspring. So I was a girl who couldn't afford to buy the first horse, and now I had, I had my original horse, Zar, my kid's two ponies. I had Nature's Ballet, the stallion, and a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a weanling offspring of the stallion. And Sonny left. So a few months later, I had trained all the horses that were old enough to train. I had trained them to be riding horses. And Dorothy and Bob Ayers lived across the street from me in Albion. They were teachers in Mendocino. And they had some friends up from the city and asked if I could take six people for a trail ride. And I said, sure. So I put one on my dressage horse, one on the stallion, one on the five-year-old, one on the four-year-old, one on the three-year-old, one on the two-year-old. And I didn't ride the weanling, but I rode my daughter's pony. And I took them for a trail ride. And they loved it. And when they came back, when they came back from the trail ride, they offered to pay me. <laughs> you know, I was doing a favor for my neighbors. So that was the first uh, 
trail ride that I took a group of people on and actually earned some money doing it. That was the start of Ricochet Ridge. Nice. And nice. That was, let's see, my daughter was born in 77, so that was 80 when I you know, started it as a business. <laughs> So you had mentioned that people often want to go onto the beach first. When did you start going into Jackson? I could ride from my property in Albion to Jackson. I rode out to the end of the Albion Ridge, and I could ride down through Table Mountain Ranch um, into Big River and, you know, get into Jackson from that side. So I did that while I lived in Albion. Um, when the property became available in 1982 in Cleon, I moved the business up there and was originally renting and eventually, luckily, was able to purchase that uh, that property and take people both on the beach and in the breadwoods. But I always rode in Jackson. Mm-hmm. And on our week-long riding vacations, we rode Monday on the beach, Tuesday in Jackson, Wednesday on the beach, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we alternated riding in Jackson State and up here in the 10-mile region. What kind of arrangements did you have to make with um, CDF, California Department of Forestry, to be able to guide in Jackson? Um, Forrest Tilly was the area manager of Jackson in those years. And California has a good Samaritan law whereby you can give somebody permission to recreate on your land or to transport, to go across your property. And as long as you don't charge for that, privilege. You cannot be held responsible unless you have, with malicious intent, caused an injury. So if I were to let you ride your bike or hike or ride your horse through a property that I own and you fell off, <laughs> you couldn't sue me. Uh-huh. And unless I like strung a, a piano wire across the trail, I knew you were going to be riding your bike at 20 miles an hour on, you know, did or shot you or something like that. Um, and so... Jackson State in those years did not charge me, and I did not have a um, contract with them to produce rides. Hmm. Any more than if somebody rented a horse, I mean a car from Avis or one of the Hertz rent-a-car places, you could drive into a state park or drive into a state forest or a national forest, and um, Avis is not responsible if you get in a wreck while you're driving in that place. So people were in effect, renting a horse from me. And they could have gone riding there by themselves. I was nice enough to send a guide with them or go myself so that they didn't get lost and also to keep the ride as safe as possible. Yeah. So there was that understanding that it was to everybody's advantage if people were guided on these trail rides. And the fact that I was making a living putting on a trail ride, you know, guiding business... um, that was incidental to the fact that these trails are open to the public. Do you have any particular routes that you really liked taking people on, or are those secret? Uh, yeah, that's always the thing with trails. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, one of the maps that I uh, have laid out showed in the 80s, equestrians, horseback riders, and hikers and cyclists, we got together and we we showed each other our favorite trails on the great big map of Jackson State. And we told each other where we thought um, some trail work needed to be done to make it safer and where we thought it wasn't safe for horses to go, for instance. Um, Cyclists or hikers might have found a route and we 
horseback riders might see the beginning of a trail and think, gee, I wonder where that goes. But cyclists might have said, and it gets so narrow and so sheer that, you know, I don't think it would be a good idea for you to take your horses out there. So we, um, hikers and equestrians and cyclists, from the beginning of my involvement with using Jackson State Forest for, you know, I, I, I do all three, as a matter of fact, we work with each other. The only issues are if a hor- horses are so big mm-hmm. and they're easily incited to flight. Their only real means of defense is flight. They don't have antlers or horns like you know some other animals. They don't even have cloven hooves, and they sure don't have fangs. So they can bite and kick and butt you with their head, <laughs> but they are much more likely to flee. And uh, in nature, horses can go you know 20, 30 miles a day fleeing, and they... If they see a little something moving in the bush, they're more likely to run away from it. And when they get a mile or two away, they'll turn around and see, oh, that wasn't a lion. (laughs) So we ask, as riders, we ask hikers in particular to talk. And then the horse sees that this thing with a backpack on it isn't some strange monster. Uh, And sometimes people think that they're... Um, they don't want to spook the horse, so they just stand still and don't say a word. But the horse can see some faint thing behind, you know, halfway hidden behind a tree or in the bushes or whatever. And if the human makes themselves known as a human, our riding horses, of course, aren't afraid of humans, and they'll be <laughs> they'll feel better about it. And with uh, with bicycles, it's the surprise factor. So going around blind curves, if cyclists can be aware that that this is a multi-use trail and there could be somebody on horseback there, a cyclist doesn't want to run into a horse any more than the horseback rider wants to get run into. Yeah. And it isn't a problem up here, I I don't think. Uh, Again, with with a bicycle, if the rider stops and asks the the horseback rider, would you rather ride around me or should I... Do you want to stand still and I'll go around you? And it kind of depends on how wide the trail is and how many bicycles there are and how many horses there are. Yeah, yeah. The communication is the thing. But legally, horseback riders have the right of way. Yeah. Well, I'm always somebody who talks to horses and talks to any animal I see really out there. And what do you have recommendations on how we should talk to a horse? Is it? Certain kind of voice, certain things to say. <laughs> you know, horses—they—they um, probably know words like "ho," "there," "good boy," things like that. Um, but they're not going to really understand the words you say, um, other than a few familiar ones. But the tone of voice, obviously, if you—if somebody shrieks, it's going to scare the horse. They don't know that the person's afraid; they just are afraid by the shrieking. Um, so keeping calm and talking in a you know, a mellow voice is the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you asked about what uh, sections of Jackson we ride in. And as horseback riders who uh, well compete and enjoy um, distance riding, we, as I think I've told you, um, I produced a 50-mile and a 100-mile cross-country endurance ride in Jackson State Forest, and as well as a 25-mile uh training event. And um, Marianne Gersing produces another one in Jackson State Forest, 25 and 50 miles. And so um, 
there's practically not a section of the forest that horseback riders haven't enjoyed riding. Uh, but the areas that are most used um, are the areas around Casper, because there's a trailhead that's easy to get your rig to. And there's many people that live in that area who can ride from where they live into the trails. And, um, and then also the Camp One, the egg take area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's places where you can park a horse trailer at the beginning of Road 350 and uh, down Oh, at the top of 370, and I won't name all the names because of the roads because there's lots of different places. And horseback ride overnight camping is not allowed there other than in the Red Tail Camp and in the horse camp out by Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. And Chamberlain, well, Red Tail is, oh, about three miles uh, back west from Camp One area on Road 300. And Chamberlain is about... Is it 15 or 17 miles? I think it's 17 miles by the time you get there mm-hmm. from the coast. Yeah. So from Chamberlain, um, that's about halfway east in the forest from Fort Bragg. And so people that camp there or for the day or for longer, you know, for overnights, can they can explore a wide range of trails. So you had you have taken people out for various kinds of horse riding therapy. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. The Make-A-Wish Foundation, when I owned the uh, Ricochet Ridge Ranch riding vacations, would often send kids whose wish was to ride a horse. And, um, and on my week-long vacations, also, adults came uh, with, for various reasons. I remember one woman who was in line for a heart-lung transplant, and her dream was to ride a horse on the beach. So we hung her oxygen bottle off the side of the horse, and she had, uh, she had, at home, she had walked and trotted on a lesson horse. And on the beach, it was just so beautiful, and she was such a natural in rhythm with the horse rider that I said, you know, I think you'll be even more comfortable cantering than trotting on the horse. So she was on a wonderful Appaloosa named Red Wing, and we cantered along, and the we had we had tied the oxen bottle so it didn't bounce on the horse's side. Um, I think the story that I told you about for the uh, book was a little girl named Megan, who at the time was 12 and was dying from cystic fibrosis. And Megan was um, recently deaf because of the ravages of the antibiotics that she'd had to take to ruin her hearing. And she had yet to learn to read lips or... Uh, communicate with sign language very well. She was just, you know, and she could a little bit understand, but um, so she came with her 13-year-old sister who had fallen on the schoolyard playground and broken her humerus the day before, and her 17-year-old brother and her mother and father. And they were from Alaska, and uh, the father ran a whitewater kayaking business, so he was quite an outdoorsman. And the, the mother was pretty much afraid of horses. So we had Megan, who none of them had ever been on a horse. And Megan, at age 12, had a hard time hearing, understanding what I was saying. And her sister, who understood quite well but only had one useful arm, the other being in a sling up to her shoulder. I mean, a cast up to her shoulder. Um, we put them on 
five wonderful horses, and they joined a group of adults who had come for a week-long riding vacation. One couple in the group was a, a couple on their honeymoon. And I hoped that it wouldn't kind of bum them out having a dying little girl with them on their honeymoon. <laughs> well, far from it. <laughs> Everybody, Megan and her sister and brother and her father and eventually her mother, were so thrilled with the riding. And Megan was riding a beautiful gray Arabian named Farage. And on the first day, I led Farage. And on the second day, Carolyn Morgan, who was one of the women who was working with me then, led her when we were riding in Jackson State Forest. And in the afternoon in Jackson State, I took over leading Megan's horse, and I told her that we would be able to do a little bit of a canter now on one of the uphills. And uh, I was able to communicate with her because I had gotten on one of the local radio stations and probably made a fool of myself by asking if anybody locally could speak ASL, American Sign Language. And three people volunteered. One woman who was an ASL uh, instructor in Boonville and one of her students and another woman who uh, was an ASL translator. And so one of them rode with me each day, and we were able to communicate to Megan that she should just lean a little bit forward as we were going up the hill and hold on to the horse's mane hair with one hand to help balance herself, and that when I raised my hand, and I'm saying out loud, ho, and I would raise my hand, she would pull back a little bit on the reins, and we would stop. She just did a beautiful job of it, and... Um, by Thursday, when we cantered on the beach, I was able to let her canter by herself without the lead rope. And I took some wonderful photos on Friday as we're cantering back from Westport, uh, back to Ricochet. The other horses kind of fanned out in a V behind Megan. Everybody let Megan and Farage be in the front. And some seagulls just went in formation above her head. And I was cantering just, you know, to the east on the beach. And and Megan's dreams came true. And I'm happy to say that um, Megan's still with us. That was 12 years ago. Wow. And she, was, she is one of the people who has the genetic makeup that uh, responds to a new treatment. And so her cystic fibrosis is not going to continue to damage her lungs. Her lungs are still shot. She still needs a lung transplant. But um, it won't get any worse than it is now. Thank you for sharing that. Can you, for those of us who aren't familiar with, with horse terms, what is a canter? Ah. Most horses have three different um, gates. The walk is a four-foot flat uh, gate in which there's always one or two or three feet on the ground. So there's no bounciness to it. And horses can walk anywhere from, oh, two to five miles an hour. And each horse kind of has their natural way of walking. Some horses just walk fast, and some horses just dawdle along. And then a bit of a faster gait is a trot, which is a two-beat diagonal gait in which there's always, not always, in which two feet, the diagonal pair, let's say the left hind foot and the right forefoot are on the ground and push off. And then in midair, 
the horses switch diagonal pairs and they land on the right hind and left fore and then push off. And then there's a moment of suspension where they switch diagonal pairs. So there's, when any hooves are on the ground, there's two. One of them is a, a front foot, one of them's a hind foot, one of them's on the left-hand side, one of them's on the right-hand side. So the trot is a very balanced gait. Uh, and your weight and the horse's weight and the weight of the saddle is distributed between two legs. One on the front, one on the back, one on the right. Thank you for telling us. We've got company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Horses can trot in place. They can do it very, very slowly, and it's a beautiful thing to watch, uh, and that is called a pee-off. Or they can do a very suspended trot called a uh, passage. Or they can do a racing trot, and they can go up to 30 miles an hour on the racetrack. Uh, but... Riding horses, normally, your horse will trot along at, oh, 6 to 16 miles per hour. And uh, when your horse is really going fast, he might trot up to 20 miles an hour. The third gait that horses do normally is a canter. And the fast version of a canter is called a gallop. The canter is a three-beat gait in which the horse pushes off with one hind leg, and then the diagonal pair opposite that hind leg, so if it's the left hind that they push off with, they then have the right hind and the left fore and push off against that. And then the leading foreleg, in this case it would be the right foreleg, all by itself, and then a moment of suspension, and then they come down again on the left hind and then the diagonal pair and then leading fore. Now, at a gallop that's a faster canter, the diagonal pair gets kind of split up. And so the hind foot hits ground slightly before the forefoot. And for many, many years, you've probably seen the photographs, the first photographs of a motion picture of a horse cantering. Mm-hmm. And it was proved that horses do totally leave the ground. There's that moment of suspension in the canter. Anyhow, a canter is usually comfortable for a rider to ride. And the trot can be more bouncy with the longer moment of suspension. So a rider has to learn to either go with the motion of the trot or stand up with their back following the motion of the horse's back and hips or stand up a little bit in their stirrups and take the shock of the movement with the rider's ankles and knees and hips or rise up and down in rhythm with the trot. And we call that rising to the trot or posting the trot. Mm -hmm. So I would like to back up a little bit and just... um, continue in the conversation of coexistence of different trail users mm-hmm. what would you how would you recommend that we could move forward more mostly people do get along but there are a few people who really don't even now and it feels like we need to mend some bridges yes and um again way back when <laughs> i said how we equestrians and cyclists and hikers got together and um and we had a, an organization, actually, that had all three users in it. And I, unfortunately, I don't know that there's an organization like that uh, at the moment. I don't think there is. Yeah. So I think communication is obviously what has to happen. And familiarity. I think if, if horseback riders could um, show, I think... Uh, becoming familiar with the three different sports really facilitates this communication. 
if a hiker or somebody who rides bicycles has the opportunity to ride a horse, they're much more likely to understand why people would want to do that. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, as we spoke about the fact that um, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation sent people with different abilities to ride with me, horseback riding makes it possible for a person who would not be able to experience the trails either on their own two feet or on a bicycle to be able to get out there in the wilderness. Um, whether somebody, you know, uh, well, there's various different things. I don't know. I need to go into the details. But in our Circle of Horses riding therapy program, um, we have people ranging in age from probably 4 to 94 who are able to experience being out and the, the healthy atmosphere of it, the communication with the animal, as well as the physical exercise and just the visual beauty of being out. We're happy to host the Circle of Horses Riding Therapy Program. Um, I, my whole life, I've been aware of the fact that horses are a way for people who wouldn't ordinarily be able to get out in the wilderness or an open space uh, to use the strength of the horse to give them the ability. People who maybe couldn't hike or couldn't uh, ride a bicycle um, but don't want to be in a car or other motorized vehicle and yet want to experience nature. Experience some of the joy that I had from riding a horse. Um, I was always interested in riding therapy programs. So from day one with Ricochet, I offered this. And we used to have a wonderful Welsh pony named Gypsy. And we had, uh, we started through the College of the Redwoods, a riding therapy program. And people came to the program for various reasons. Uh, some people were visually, had visual impairments. We, on the first day of the first class, we had a woman who'd been in a car wreck and she was paralyzed from the waist down. She had ridden before her accident, so she was familiar with horses. And there happened to be a photographer and reporter from the Mendocino Beacon there that day. And he got pictures of us lifting this woman onto the horse. And we didn't have a ramp. We didn't. This is the first time I'd ever had a program like that. So we didn't have really... um, the different facilities that would make it easier to get her on top of the horse. So we each took a a limb, two people on a leg, two people on arms, and the pony was, she was a big pony, standing there brace-legged as we we got um, this guest up on her. And then this woman took the reins, and the photographer got this poignant photo of her riding away. The pony had arched her neck and had her ears forward, and and the rider had a smile from ear to ear, and no other people or horses in the photo, and the lone wheelchair in the background. And she was able to walk, trot, and canter on that horse because the horse, in effect, said, oh, we're not speaking leg commands. You're not asking me what to do by using your legs. Uh, so she would, like, shake a shoulder. And the, the horse, the pony, also knew some voice commands. So she would walk, trot, and canter just effortlessly because wow. it was a communication between her and the horse. So over the years, um, it was just wonderful having various people. I remember one year a woman communicated with me via email, Uh, She was from England and said she was visually impaired. 
Um, and I said, okay, fine. Well, she was driven up here by her driver and got out of the vehicle with a white cane. She was totally blind and had been from birth. And I put her on an endurance horse who had won a number of 50 and 100-mile endurance rides. And uh, the other guests, when they... I was introducing everybody to their horses when they saw that I was putting this woman on a horse that I introduced as being one of the fastest and most successful, you know, endurance horses in our string of horses, thought, oh, Larry, shouldn't you put her on somebody? And she had, we'd communicated, and she told me she was an excellent rider, and she rode all the time. And she wanted a very sensitive horse, and boy, was this horse sensitive. And at first, as we were riding into the trees, people riding behind her would say, oh, there's a branch, duck to your left, or there's a bush, duck to your left. And the poor girl was ducking left, right, left, right. And I finally said, the horse, Prince Hashim, is not going to take her off of the trail. And I'll tell her, if, she, if any of us, I'll tell all of you if you need to duck a branch. So everybody just then trusted the horse, and so did this rider. And she trotted and cantered for, for a week. So Barbara Auerbach has uh, started the current writing therapy program, which we feel um, lucky to be able to host. And some of my retired endurance horses uh, are now taking people ranging in age from probably 4 to 94. Wow. Not everybody rides. Some people, there's one lady who's in a, a wheelchair. And, um, and she enjoys walking... Or, <laughs> The horse is walking, and she's in her wheelchair leading the horse around, and she's petting the horse, and the horse leans over her to make it easier for her to scratch the horse's face and pet the horse, and and uh, people just, the communication with another animal mm. brings something in their lives. And yeah. some people do eventually learn to trot and canter on the horses. We are almost out of time, but I would love if you could share with us what you see as a, a vision for the future of Jackson. I'm hoping that in the future that Jackson State Forest will continue to be a multiple-use resource for people who live around here and for people from out of the area that come here. And one of the uses of Jackson State is recreation. Um, and it's important that recreation not only be allowed but facilitated and that means trails both cleared and be opened uh, if, if at the end of a time that they're logging in a certain area they can leave culverts in so that hikers and cyclists and horseback riders can continue to ride and continue on loops that they have traditionally used um, and areas which are heavily used for recreation, such as the areas around Casper and Chamberlain and uh, Camp One area, Brandon Gulch Loop, <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, logging will, timber harvest will not need to be done in those areas in the future. And, and that will take some communication between the, uh, the state in terms of realizing uh, timber harvest value from parts of the forest while having the highest and best use be recreation and ecological concerns in probably half of the forest. And that's my hope. 
Thank you so much for being with us, Larry. It's been a pleasure to sit here on your hilltop and hear your stories. Thank you for coming up here. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. We hope you've learned as much as we did making this show. To hear past editions, go to www.mendocinotrailstewards.org, the media links page, where you will find all past episodes archived. You can also listen on kzyx.org, archive slash jukebox, or even better, get the KZYX Public Affairs app wherever you get your podcasts. With this convenient click, you can hear any of the many great shows put on entirely by volunteers on KZYX, listener-supported public radio from Mendocino County. We would like to thank all the people who took part in this show and all the people who are out there trying so hard to change the management of this gem of a forest. We would also like to thank Gene Parsons and George Russell for some of the original music that you're hearing in this show and sending out a prayer across the dimensions in the background to the immortal Clarence White on guitar. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge, and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, what we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. The views and opinions expressed here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour represent only the hosts and the guests of this show, not the management or staff of KZYX. 